I read a lot, uh, but it's all over the map. Uh, but in the course of reading so much over the years, I think it's always been in the back of my mind, could I ever write a piece of long fiction? And so when I started this book, I don't think it was with any intent that I would publish or ever try to sell a story. But I thought, I want to see if I've got truly have the desire and the discipline. And if on the back of those, I will make the time to write a novel. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Alan Levi is a singer-songwriter and an exceedingly talented storyteller. His memoir from a few years ago, The Last Sweet Mile, is a moving account of his life with his brother, especially the last year before his brother died. Alan has also been a lawyer and a judge, and now he's a novelist. Theo of Golden, Alan Levi's first novel, is the story of a mysterious and kind stranger who comes to a small town. Alan Levi, I am so happy, as always, to talk to you and especially to have you on the Habit Podcast. So thank you for being here. You're almost as happy as I am to be here, perhaps. <laughs> Good to see you, Jonathan. Thank you. Uh, okay, so you have finally gotten around to writing a novel. Yeah. Theo of Golden. Yeah. Um, give me the the quick summary with, of of what this story is about. I was telling you a minute ago. I'm afraid that if I were to summarize it, I would end up telling too much. So you yeah. you have more you have more practice. Yeah. So let me give you a curious thumbnail summation of the book. It is about an old man who sits on a bench, who hears people's stories, and exercises a a somewhat peculiar kindness. Hmm. Uh, that alone really does describe the action of the book, which is obviously no action except for the fact that that's where many of us live our lives. The old man, the peculiar kindness that he does, uh, he has discovered a coffee shop in a town in middle Georgia. On the walls of the coffee shop are 92 portraits that are exquisitely done by a pencil portrait artist. And the old man has the idea, because they're all hanging there for sale, that he would buy them one at a time, mm -hmm. find the people depicted in the portraits, and then present those as gifts to them with a little speech of affirmation for each recipient. And that is basically the uh, the seed corn of the story. Friendships develop out of that. Relationships develop. And yeah, that's the story. Yeah. Um, I love that idea of when Theo hands off these, these portraits and he, he names you could say he names the people that he yeah. that he gives these portraits to. He says, "You know, yeah. here's some things about about you that I see in you, yeah, that you maybe don't see about yourself." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was uh, to me. That's the magic of the story. I think most of us fail to really see ourselves for who we are. Lots of times, mm -hmm. and the old man who is 86 years old uh, from Portugal, with an enormously gracious heart, uh, buys the portraits. He spends time with them almost as if they are living entities mm. while he writes these beautiful letters uh, to people. And when he finally gives them, it is with, uh, with the intention of affirming these people uh, based on what he sees. I will give you this little footnote too. I bought five of the actual portraits. I went into a coffee shop that had 92 portraits on the wall. Really? And, and the idea came to me, wouldn't it be fun to buy all of these one at a time and give them away? And that, that's where the story came from. But I bought five of the portraits that day. 
And as I was writing the book, uh, most of the time they were in plain view. There's mm. Ellen, there's Basil, there's mm. Kendrick, there's Manette, and I feel like I know these people huh. now. Yeah. And if I were to ever give the portraits to them, I, I think I could do what Theo did. I could say, you know, I really think this face depicts a beautiful soul, and this is what I think the soul looks like. Theo did that very deliberately. Uh, he didn't necessarily script the encounters that he had with people, but I have a strong sense that he had an idea of what he wanted to tell them. Mm -hmm. And the people were typically very moved by it. Mm. Yeah. So there is a coffee shop in yeah. this is in, in Columbus, Georgia. That's right. And it, I, I knew, I knew there was a coffee shop in Columbus, Georgia that you were, you know, that you based this on. I didn't realize there were the pictures are in there. There was a beautiful little place called Fountain City Coffee, um, and it is set pretty much true to what I describe as the setting in the book. There's there's some theaters nearby, some performing mm. arts venues, um, and so this little small coffee shop. Uh, displays the portraits of a local artist who is a very dear friend of mine named Gary Pound. And to me, he is world-class as a portrait artist. Mm -hmm. um, he and I did a children's book years ago called Olivia Town. And, and he is pretty celebrated down in this region as a portrait artist. But his his work is on display. And uh, anybody who wants to see them all in, in real life can go to Fountain City Coffee. Really wonderful that? people yeah. uh, own and operate the place. Um. What do you, what, what's something you've learned about portrait drawing that you, that I would find interesting? This would probably not be new, uh, but I think it, it's interesting, uh, even if we already know it, faces matter. Mm -hmm. uh, faces matter. And Theo, you know, he studies the, the physiognomy of these people mm -hmm. and he does it with affection and when he finally gets with people, he looks in their eyes, he beholds their faces, and there's almost this instant connection because he does that very simple thing. I just ordered a book this week. I've heard some author lectures by David Brooks about his new book, How yeah. to Know a Person. Mm -hmm. And I gather before reading the book that one of the things he is going to remind all of us uh, about is the importance of looking into people's faces and eyes. I think, unfortunately, uh, and, and I plead guilty to this before I make the charge, many of us have fallen prey to the uh, belief, the practice of engaging only through screens. Yeah. And there's not there's not much terribly incarnational about that. That's why I love the fact that this old man sits on a on a bench next to a person close enough to touch them. And so I think just the importance of 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 the the faces that God has given us, uh, there's a moment late in the book. Uh, where a young man confronts a district attorney mm -hmm. uh, in whose court he has been a defendant. And he makes the point to the district attorney, uh, you never one time looked at my face. I was just a number on an indictment. I was just uh, an abstraction to you. And so maybe the, the interesting thing to answer your question is that we do not look at faces very much or very closely. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, I plead guilty to that myself, but I'm trying to get better at it. Yeah. Uh, do you draw? I, I noodle. And my oh. one of my deepest aspirations in life, if I can ever get the audacity uh, to pull the trigger, I want to learn to draw and paint. I have such an admiration for artists. And, uh, and my life is rich with visual artists. Hmm. I've written some book introductions. I've got a lot of friends who are 
you know, some are very obscure, some are quite well known as artists. And I so love what they are able to do uh, to delight the eye. Yeah. Uh, but so, so to answer your question, if nobody's around <laughs> and if I've got the time, I've got all the pencils, I've got the pads, I've got yeah. the paper, I've got the brushes, and I will kind of get in my corner and and sketch a little bit. So you and I both know and love Joe Sutphin. Yeah. Joe was here a few years ago, and I was telling him about this this deep desire that I have, you know, to, yeah. to learn to draw and paint. And he said, well, do you already have all the pencils? And I said, <laughs> yeah, I've already got them. He said, have you got a bunch of different kind of pads? And I said, man, I got every kind of pad you can imagine. He said, have you, have you also got some paints and some brushes? And I said, man, I got it. I got everything. And then he asked, of course, the only question that mattered. He said, well, have you drawn anything? And I said, I hadn't drawn a thing. Yeah. And he said, Alan, that's all nice to have that for future use, but go to the office depot and buy 12 number one or number two pencils. It'll cost you less than a buck and a half. Get 500 pieces of copy paper. It'll cost you less than six or eight bucks. And draw on every one of those pieces of paper. When you finish, crumple them up and throw them away. It's not going to be very good. But at some point, you've got to be brave and you've got to step up and do it. And that's great advice, I think, for any creative, right? Yeah. Book writer. I don't care what the, the medium is. Uh, at some point, we just have to we have to be brave and, and do something. So, uh, yeah, I want to learn how to draw, but no, I don't yet. I love that advice of getting cheap copy paper and cheap pencils. Yeah. Right. My, my wife very kindly bought me a nice drawing. I told her I wanted to draw for yeah. Christmas this year. Okay. Give me some nice drawing pads, some nice pencils, but they're too nice for me to to draw the kind of things I can draw. They're not good enough to, to these pads deserve better than what I can. They're do. terrifying. The pads yeah. are terrifying. Yeah. Right. You know, Churchill wrote this wonderful book. I'm I'm sure you're familiar with it. The the uh, what is it? The oh, what is it called? Painting is a pastime. Painting is a pastime. It's like a thirty minute read. Oh, I didn't and, know it was that. Short. I, I just know the name. I didn't know it was a short little book. Short little book, and the point that he makes. Now, this is you know the the lion. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, during the World War II, he he said I was terrified of the blank canvas, and he said the first thing that that one must possess to to ever paint is audacity. <laughs> and I think that that's what you feel when you pick up that pad, or when I pick up a blank piece of of paper to write on, or to you know to start a story or whatever. Uh, and I think most of us identify with that at some point, unless we start really young mm -hmm. and we kind of overcome that. And and then we we are brave without even knowing that we're brave. It's just what we do. I went to this wonderful gathering a few years ago. Um, it was a corporate function, but they brought in all of these luminaries from around the world in the dance world, in the orchestral world. But they brought this. Wait, time out. You were, I, I take it you were one of the luminaries. Is this true? Well, well, <laughs> no. But I did get to sit in the room with him. Is that close <laughs> enough? Yes. Like I'm doing right now, you see. Uh, I'm basking in the glow of greatness. But but there was this one guy who was, he was a graffiti artist. And and he 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 was real hip. He was from Los Angeles. A beautiful communicator. And uh -huh. so he comes out and he he does a little artwork on this uh, this easel. And he and he turns around and uh, he, he addresses the audience. And he says, um... What was his first question? I can't remember exactly what it was. The second question he asked was, how many of y'all like, I think the first question was, how many of y'all like to draw? And, you know, a lot of people kind of politely raise their hand. 
He said, how many would, who would like to come up and draw right now? <laughs> Every person in the room, 2,500 people looked at the floor. And then he said this, what happened? He said, if I go to any first grade class in America and ask that question, the kids nearly wrench their arms out of joint, raise their hands quickest. <laughs> and so he says, so for the next hour, let's explore what happened. What wow. happened between first grade and today? And the answer in a word was fear happened. Mm -hmm. You know, we became so self-conscious yeah. and, and so intent on pleasing people or performing somehow. He, he said, he said, that's the big hurdle for us to get over. So when you look at that pad that your wife gave you, yeah. you're, you're, you're staring your fear right in the face, I think. And, and, and me too. I think we yeah. all do. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you reach a point you, when you're little, you're writing for joy. You don't, you don't think, right. You're not thinking, what does this say about me as a person? Right. Yeah. And then at right. some point, you learn this thing I'm drawing, this thing I'm writing is not just an expression of itself; it's an expression of who I am, and and right. and therefore it's a it's a uh, uh, yeah. There, there's something to be afraid of at that yeah. point. And then we start playing the the you know the comparison game. Oh, I'm I'm good, but Jonathan's so much better than I am. So why would I waste my time in this paper and this pencil on this sort of thing? Yeah. But uh, yeah, so hey, Jonathan, my word to you: be brave. Okay, All go, right. go to uh, go to Office Depot okay. and get you the paper and the number two pencils. And you know, just I might I might even have to just draw on the back of <laughs> of scrap paper, right? Not even not yeah. even blank copy paper. Even that, even that, yeah, yeah, anything, right? Yeah. Do it. Okay. All right. I'll I'll. <laughs> See what I can come up with and show it to you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Speaking of the courage to sort of take a, a blank uh, paper and start putting marks on it. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, you, the, you're full of youthful energy, but you, but in terms of of years, you, you're kind of yeah. up there. I'm an old dude. Go ahead and say. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> and you sat down and wrote a novel. You'd never yeah. written a novel before, and then you did. Right. Yeah. And you had to make it up as you went along, right? You you, mm -hmm. you figured out one thing. I, I just know from reading one of your blog posts is you you started out sort of flying by the seat of your pants, and then you right. realized that wasn't how it was going to work for you, and you did something different. So tell me about that. I, I want to hear more about that. Yeah, well, as you know, I have have written in a, a different form than long sure. fiction for years. I've been a songwriter for years, and those are sixteen or twenty lines, and you kind of mm -hmm. wrestle the words to the mat quickly. And you've got the music to kind of mask or cover up the imperfections of of the lyric a lot of times. Uh, but I've done that for a long time. Uh, you wrote, wrote a nonfiction book. You, you have written a whole book before. Yeah, I have. I wrote a long letter to my family about my brother who passed away in 2012 called The Last Sweet Mile. Yeah, what a beautiful and, uh, book, by the way. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, so I had that under my belt, but I read a lot. Uh -huh. I'm I'm not a I'm I'm not a disciplined reader, but I read plentifully. I don't uh -huh. have a television. I haven't for most of my adult life, and I read a lot, uh, but it's all over the map. Uh, but in the course of reading so much over the years, I think it's always been in the back of my mind: Could I ever write a piece of long fiction? And so when I started this book, I don't think it was with any intent that I would publish or ever try to sell mm. a story. But I thought I want to see if I've got truly have the desire and the discipline. And if on the back of those, I will make the time to write a novel. And so when I was in the coffee shop, I saw the portraits, I had the idea. 
and I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to try to write this book. Mm -hmm. This was kind of during the COVID time. So it mm -hmm. seemed like all of us had a little bit of extra time on our hands. Um, and yeah, 67. So it's, it's late to do anything new, maybe, and maybe not. I think that may be a misconception yeah, on our parts, right. but, um, so I sat down and, and started writing, uh, and I, I kind of did it according to something that I have heard for much of my adult life from authors, that they start with just a situation mm -hmm. or just the smallest hint of an idea for a plot. I had no plot. Mm -hmm. I just had that image in my mind of buying and giving these portraits away. And I thought, well, if I write enough, if I just scribble enough, waste enough paper, then somehow this beautiful thing is going to just organically rise up off the page. And it just absolutely did not happen. No. And it was extremely frustrating, but I didn't have a deadline or a goal of finishing a, a book for publication. So I just thought, well, I'll do this, you know, as I have time. So I would work a week and then I'd take three months off and I'd mm -hmm. write in a month really hard and see if something happened. And uh, it was extremely frustrating, but never to the point that I wanted to quit. I, I, but, Maybe I did want to quit, but I loved it. I really enjoyed yeah. it and, yeah. and just wrestling with, with, with the task in front of me. So I went to Portugal for a few weeks with a nephew of mine to discover something about the world that this man, my protagonist, might have. Okay, so, so you already knew he was Portuguese yeah. before you went to Portugal. That's right. And, uh, but I knew nothing about Portugal. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and I don't know why I chose Portugal as his homeland. I have a hint of an idea, but... So I went over and fell in love with the country in the short time I was there. And I, I kind of found this little place in the north of Portugal that I thought this could be where he grew up. Huh. And that was inspiring. That was incentivizing to me. And so I came back home and I just, you know, I just wrote and wrote and wrote. Uh, but I never felt like a story was bubbling up. I just never had a narrative arc or a plot that I felt like I was working toward. Uh, so I just had these vignettes of the moments on the bench Mm -hmm. The characters, I was able to kind of breathe some life into a couple of them anyway. Uh, but I realized at some point I've, I've got to kind of, I've got to take a change of direction. And that's when I heard a lecture by Amor Tolls. And that changed yeah. it for me. He's, Amor Tolls, I've never known how to say his name. Did you say that right? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Amor or Amor Tolls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've never known exactly how to say his name. Yeah. Um, I've heard that. It, and you can confirm or not deny this. It's not just the outlines. It's like he outlines and then re-outlines and re-outlines such that he's got a bunch of paragraphs right. that are kind of the book, right? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. He calls himself, at least in, in one of the, the videos that I watched, he calls himself a story designer. I think he chooses that, that title mm -hmm. rather than author. And he says that before he actually commits to the serious writing, uh, he'll spend about a year designing his story, mm -hmm. but his design process sounds really uh, thorough and intense such that by the time he starts writing, he knows the characters. He knows every chapter, where they're going to lay, where they're going to fall. He's got his transitions in place. And uh, so he says when he starts writing, uh, he kind of knows where he's going, but that still leaves room for, you know, for magic to bubble up and for things mm -hmm. to happen and change. Uh, and so when I heard him say that, as opposed to Stephen King's uh, model for writing, which is just get the slimmest little circumstance and see where it leads you. Mm -hmm. uh, I found the tolls approach compelling because as a trial lawyer, that's mm -hmm. how I did trials. 
Yeah. You know, you sit down, you get your evidence over the course of discovery, but you're kind of weaving your story together before you ever get into the courtroom, such that when you get there, hopefully you have a script and you know where you want it to go. So I thought that that worked, that would work for me. Yeah. And so I still had some pieces in place that I could use, but I started doing a little more outlining and I wasn't so intent on finishing a chapter or a page. I was just trying to think, what does the story look like? And and that helped me. And so I'm, I'm trying to start another book now. Uh-huh. And so I've spent the last few weeks not writing anything, but I've, I'm starting to, you know, come up with my timeline backwards, forwards. I'm writing transition sentences mm-hmm. between chapters to see if they flow. Huh. And, uh, and I'm, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think you, that yeah. I'll write much more efficiently this time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm not going to say much about, about this, but there's a big <laughs> reveal at the end. Yes. That I didn't see coming. Good. <laughs> um, at what point, like, did, did you, was it the outlining process that got you to that big reveal that that you didn't? I know when you started, you didn't know that was yeah. where the story yeah. was going. At what point did you? At what point in the process did that big reveal at the end? Am I? Yeah. Am I? Is it okay for me to say there's a big reveal at the end? Oh, that's great. That's I mean, great. I think I think you can tell from page one that if there's not a, if, if there's not a big yeah. reveal at the end of this book, then I don't know what I'm doing here. So yeah, 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 right. And, <laughs> and this so, mysterious and, guy comes into town, and yeah. Yeah, he's he's a stranger to the community, and uh, he he does not ever give a last name. He's just Theo, uh-huh. and he is he is quite resistant to any attempt on the part of people to learn a last name for him. But I think as I was even doing it before I went to the outline mode, I had that in the back of my mind. I knew there's got to be something at the end pushing against the rest of the text, mm-hmm. and so I, I that idea had come to me. The big reveal. Yeah. I wasn't sure how I was going to quite get there. So there were actually kind of two key moments. There is the uh, there is the moment of drama, uh-huh. and then there is the moment of the reveal. Yeah, uh, and and both of those kind of came into focus vaguely at first. But I thought, okay, that's that's the denouement. That yeah. that's gonna that's gonna get me where I want to go. And then, you know, even after the reveal, there were some little things that I added at the eleventh uh, hour and fifty ninth minute that <laughs> uh, that I hope I can build on in a, a sequel, perhaps. But yeah, so your but next book is a sequel. That's the plan. That's the plan. I'm, I uh, I was telling my my dear niece who works for me on this project that uh, I don't want to just write a second book or a sequel just cause. And if if I can't come up with a story that I think is as good, mm-hmm. um, then you know I don't know that I'll ever release it. But uh, I'm I'm going to go all out and see if I can come up with a sequel to it. Oh. You and I both love Wendell Berry. Yeah, we love we love Port William. Yep. I don't know that Golden will be my Port William, but I do see the possibility of some really interesting stories coming out of the. There's still 92 portraits on the wall, <laughs> you know, and yeah. it may just be that somebody else picks up the uh, the idea and carries it forward like Theo did. I don't know, but but there's still a lot of stories even in the characters. There were I, I counted the other day as I was working on the outline for the next one. I think there are 26 characters that actually make you know somewhat significant appearances in the book. So there's a, there's a lot of, there's still a lot of uh, seed corn to work with. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I was thinking about that as, as I was reading through that there's plenty of stories left okay. here. Right. Thank you. So, um, I want to talk about, so, uh, okay. You live in a small town. Yep. 
Um, I know, you know, just from talking to people who who are interested in creative work, who live in rural areas, sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard for them to, you know, find people who share their interests, yeah. and um, it, it can be a little lonesome for for people who live in rural. I mean, it's, yeah. I, don't, I guess doesn't matter what your interests are, it can be lonesome to, to yeah. you know. To live in a, a rural area, I guess yeah. you're interested in football. You can find plenty of people to talk about. <laughs> right, but but I, I do. You know, I have run across a good many people who kind of struggle and with, um, you know, they, they want they want to have a, a writing writers group and they just can't round up enough writers. For instance, yeah. yeah. Um, tell me about your sort of creative endeavors in a yeah. in a rural area. I mean, I, yeah. I know you're you're pretty close to Columbus, Georgia, and there's a, there's yeah. kind of a creative community there. So I may be yeah. asking the wrong person, but. You no, know, I, th- I think not. I would say though, in response to uh, your, your statement, which is, which is true that people in small communities suffer sometimes from loneliness. I've met a lot of people in big cities that suffer mightily from loneliness. Sure. You know, sure. uh, I think what we, what we have to contend with if we're small town people is just the deprivation of that creative talent pool that we can access to to kind of help us work through things. So on this novel, um, other than just a couple of false starts with people to help me, uh, I had no help. I, there was no editor. There was no mm-hmm. coach. There was nobody to even send the manuscript to that, um, you know, that I, that I thought would get me to the end of the process. And I mean, even late, very late into the writing of it, I had no intentions of doing anything with the book. I was going to finish it. I was going to print it. I was going to put it in the drawer and leave it there and say, okay, that was my master class. Now I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to write a real book now. Uh, so yes, uh, th- there is a, a sparsity uh, maybe of resources in one sense, but for me personally, that suits me well. My, my uh-huh. coaches, I think are the books I read. Yeah. I love your podcast incidentally, which I listen to religiously and I love your letter. Uh, there oh, were a lot of times that the your newsletter, uh, it would just hit me at the perfect moment at, at wherever I was in my story. And oh, I found it. And, and so there are resources, yeah. you know, because of the Internet uh, that are available now. But as far as somebody to call and say, hey, will you will you help me through this chapter? I've got some good friends here who read a lot mm-hmm. uh, and they were very willing to, you know, read stuff along the way. Uh, but. But I love living in a small community because there isn't a whole lot of noise. And and I am very prone uh, to compare. Mm. And I think that if somebody were to criticize me too harshly and say, you should do it like this man or woman, yeah. uh, I might just throw in the towel too easily. I'm a, I'm a weak man in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a trade-off. Yeah. But I love the quiet of the small community. Uh, and quiet doesn't mean that there's not plenty to do. I mean, sure. there is plenty to do. This morning, I went to the high school, which I do three days a week, and I greeted a thousand kids and hugged a bunch of them and told them I loved them and, you know, told them to have a good weekend and President Day. And then I went and rehearsed with my piano player this morning for a house concert I'm going to do Sunday night here for 30 or so friends and folks of of, of in the neighborhood. So there's plenty to do here. This afternoon, I'll get outside and do some work on the land. I'm going to go to my writing room and, and try to do a little bit of work this afternoon. Um, so, you know, there there is plenty to do. I never get bored. Yeah. Uh, there's just this this place. I, I like the way that uh, Wendell Berry talks about his little hometown of about 100 people. He says the, the, the wonder is inexhaustible. The beauty is inexhaustible. Yeah. And I feel that about where I live here. And so a lot of the ideas, I think, that, that even – work their way into this novel. I talk a lot about birds. 
Mm-hmm. Talk a lot about plants, the flora and the fauna of the area. I make a lot of references to books that I can read because life is a bit unhurried. I think that, you know, there's a trade-off there, and a lot of that kind of seeped into the, the yeah. writing. Well, I mean, one thing I'm I'm very aware of is that, that you have a lot of really deep relationships and intentional relationships with mm-hmm. with uh with people there in your in your you know area. Yeah. And I have to say that's that is such a rich source of creative energy. It, it doesn't is. matter. I mean, the the fact that that they it doesn't matter if they're writers or not writers. That's right. That's right. People are you yeah. Know, and I think it's really um and something I have to talk to to young writers about is um books aren't ultimately where if it, it, it's real life that sort of gives you the yes. material to write. Yes. Yes. As you yes. said, you, the, the books are your coaches. You learn how stories right. work. But in terms of content, if all you're doing is recycling what you've read in books, that's right. Uh, you're not adding to the conversation um, so much as, you know, when, when you're, uh, as you said, you're, you are paying attention to the world around you, the inexhaustible right. wonders of, of what's right. around you, including right. inexhaustible human wonders. Amen. The best. And, uh, Wendell Berry, he, 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 I heard him make the comment once that uh, he had grown up around good talkers. <laughs> and I think, you know, you, you read his books and you just realize this happened when they were cutting tobacco or something. Yeah. He, he heard this somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we kind of wake up with it, with our antenna shined and mm-hmm. we are receptive, uh, inspiration will just, it will almost drown us at times. <laughs> so, you know, I, I I think that if we don't interact with people, then the characters maybe that we create in fiction will start to look either artificial uh, or somehow overly contrived. Yeah. No, that that idea of growing up around uh, good talkers is is so important. You know, yeah. I, I I really loved the opportunity to to get a you know a PhD in in British literature, that was great. And I really yeah, learned a lot yeah. from that. But in terms yeah. of being a writer, I learned to do that from hearing people talk right. at family gatherings and I'd have right. a lot of raconteurs in the family. Yeah, and, yeah. And that's where I learned how to do what I do. And I'm like I said, I love John Milton. I love all that yeah. stuff. Glad yeah. I got to do that. But yeah. that's not what where I learned how to be a writer. And, you know, I think, too, that that we live in, in perilous times in that the art of listening, the art of conversation, you know, may be on the, the wane. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I heard a guy, a, a songwriter here a few years ago who was talking about uh, his purchase of a laptop computer. And so this guy was gigging all over the place. You know, he's driving from one little place to another and doing his stuff. But he said, I got a laptop computer. And I, I, would, I would go to where I was going to play my gig. I'd check into wherever I was supposed to check in. And he said, then I would open up my laptop computer. And I would spend all afternoon on my laptop computer. And he said, I realized I'm not going to the bar. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to the greasy spoon. Mm-hmm. And he said, all of my song material is out there. And yeah. I'm lost in this screen that is mesmerizing to me. And, you know, it, it, it kind of became a manifesto to him that he would keep his laptop closed and get out and be with the people that he wrote his songs about and who love his songs and who listen to them. And I think, you know, Maybe not for every uh, every genre of fiction, but for the kind that I love myself and the kind that I hope mm-hmm. to write, 
I want there to be some real people in it. I've been asked a number of times, are the characters in this story people that you actually know? And the truth is, uh, no. But they are all composites, I'm sure, of a thousand people who I know. There was one moment in the story, this is not to give anything away, uh, but there is a a little legal component to the story, uh, which involves uh, a a man from Guatemala. Mm -hmm. He's not legally here. And he ends up in a courtroom uh, in a moment. That actually happened in my courtroom when I was a judge. Mm-hmm. And that's the only actual moment that that made its way into the book. But the rest of it was, you know, spun out of whole cloth. But I'm sure it's just the the accumulation of conversations and people who I've met and yeah. you've met, you know, along the way. Yeah. Alan, you you were a lawyer for how long and how long has it been since you've been a lawyer? Yeah, so I uh, I practiced very, very full-time from 1980 to 1990. I left for two years and went to Edinburgh, Scotland, mm-hmm. and went back to school, and then came back to three years of part-time practice. And then I ventured into music, thinking that that was just going to be maybe a year or two. I'd go broke and go back to my old mm-hmm. job. <laughs> but I continued to be a musician. I was able to do it. And then when my brother passed away, I ran for a, a local judgeship because I didn't want to travel. And... um so I was I was just a judge for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've not done anything illegal other than that, other than read books. And sometimes I read case law just because I'm interested in it. Uh-huh. Um, you, I, I remember you, okay, we're getting off of writing now, but I don't care. That's okay. Yeah, great. Yeah, because I, you, when you talked about, I've heard you talk about your time, your short time as a judge, and it gave me yeah. a lot of hope. Yeah. To tell you the truth, the way you yeah. talked about, um, you know, the way you you served the people who came in, yeah. I hope. Could you talk? I'd love for you to just. I, I know people listen to this podcast and know a little bit about about your time as a judge because that yeah. was. Uh, yeah, let me let me say this first. I mean, yes, we are getting off of writing, uh, in a sense, but I'm sure that everything that I ever did as a lawyer contributes to what I do now. As you know, hopefully, uh, yeah. maybe a novelist or book writer, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, and as a lawyer, my job was to use words, to tell stories, mm-hmm. to persuade people. As a singer-songwriter, my job was to use words, to tell stories, to persuade people. And I hope that as a novelist, if that's what I'm going to be, I'm going to use words to tell stories and persuade people. But uh, uh, so I was judge of us. It's it's a small court, small in the sense that I, ne- I didn't do felony cases or anything that was too heavy lifting in that sense. I was a probate judge. Mm. So the main thrust of the work that I did was uh, estate litigation or estate matters. So daddy dies and the kids fight over what daddy left behind mm-hmm. or, you know, or there's some kind of family squabble about estate property. But in addition to that, I also did misdemeanor criminal cases, uh, which put me in the courtroom with people who've been accused of, uh, you know, of crimes. Uh, and it, it just gave me a lens into our community uh, we have about 45,000 people in the county where I live. It's a very large geographical community, but it's it's small in terms of population. Uh, the split racially is about 65, 35, white to black. Um, and so I, I was able to just see a lot of the hurt in our community because a lot of the people that end up in court, you know, they, they make a bad decision because of maybe some pressure they have on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are financially uh, induced. Something as simple as not buying insurance for your car. Yeah. That sounds like a simple thing, but that can be an economic death sentence to somebody who's working for minimum wage and can't pay for insurance and then can't pay the fine I'm going to put on them and then can't pay the probation officer. 
And so I learned there, and maybe this was preparation that just now dawns on me uh, for writing a novel about looking at faces. I learned there to look at faces mm. and to realize, okay, this person is not an abstraction. This person is not a case number. This person is not an indictment. This person is a living soul who bears the image of God. And maybe they made really bad choices. Maybe they are just really bad people. But I want to look at them and I want to see what I can do to adjudicate justice and and bring mercy into that equation as well. In the novel about uh, Theo, uh, there is a scene where an, an elderly African-American woman talking to her son, uh, she makes the statement uh, or something along these lines, there's bad justice and there's bad mercy. Mm. But if you got if you got to make a mistake on one end or the other, always choose to make the mistake on bad justice. Bad justice hurts a lot more than bad mercy. Mm. And I think that as a judge, uh, sometimes there were cases like that. And I tended to be probably not as punitive as some people would like me to have been. But a fine to you or me that would be an inconvenience but not crippling could cripple somebody who is a single mom with two kids and nobody else helping her with her finances, working as a waitress in a local restaurant. And so, you know, I would take all of that into consideration and try to render a verdict or a sentence that was just and merciful at the same time. A bad judge uh, is just about the worst thing I can imagine a person ever having to face. Mm. Maybe the only thing wor worse is to have a bad judge and a lawyer who doesn't really care about your case. Uh, and we've got, a, I hate to say it, but we've got a lot of a lot of people that fit both of those categories. And, yeah. uh, and, and we suffer as a, as a, you know, as a society because of it. And when I went to the judgeship, I did it with the, hopefully the love and the wisdom of Christ in place. And I tried to bring that to the bench. Yeah. Well, it's not hard to see how that, that vision of the world and of people makes its way into your storytelling. Well, thank you. That's great. Yeah. All right. I want to, uh, I want to hear you talk about uh, who are the writers who are making you want to write these days. Yeah. Well, always uh, Wendell Berry. Yeah. I seem always to have uh, something in in my hand that uh, Mr. Barry has written. I love him. I've been writing, uh, reading some lately. Um, these are the ones that are just recent. One was by Shelby Foote, uh -huh. who was the Civil War historian. Yeah. Uh, before he wrote that massive uh, and significant trilogy about the Civil War, he wrote fiction. Uh -huh. uh, it was very. It was kind of a blend of Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor, and yeah. and they're beautiful. Uh, beautiful stories, very well written. But I read another one here recently by another man that grew up in the same town where Shelby Foote grew up. His name is William Allen Percy. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. William Allen Percy was the uncle of Walker Percy, who mm -hmm. also grew up in Greenville, Mississippi. And uh, the one by by William Alexander or William Allen Percy, uh, the, the writing is just sublime. I, huh. I just... I would read a paragraph five times back to back and just think, this is glorious. And it makes me want to write better sentences and better mm -hmm. paragraphs and see things more nuanced, you know, for at least yeah. in my writing. Did he write that's, Lanterns on the Levee? Was that, that's it. That's yeah, it. That's, that's the book you're talking about? That's it. Yeah. Uh, and he was also a poet. Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just not grown up enough yet for poetry. I'm, <laughs> I'm easing into it. I read Mr. Berry. I read Mary Oliver, uh, some yeah. poets that are accessible to me. but. Yeah. Uh, so I've not read his poetry, but and the, you know, and that you know, the, what, if you've heard of Percy's relics, you know the 
16th, 17th century uh, nobleman, Percy, he, he collected you know, collected ballads and things and wrote a book called, uh, had a collection called Percy's Relics. That's the same Percy's. That's the same family. Really? Uh-huh. You know, isn't it amazing that it's talking about little towns? Okay, so yeah. we talk about Hamilton, Georgia, where I live now. Or you talk about some of these little dying communities in the in the southeast. So Greenville, Mississippi, and you've got Shelby Foote, you've got Walker Percy, you've got W.A. Percy. And I don't know who else. I don't know if Faulkner had any relationship to that to that little community. But you just think there's some pretty miraculous writers that come out of mm -hmm. small communities. Mm -hmm. And my guess is that they all grew up around and were themselves good talkers, <laughs> yeah. you know, and they yeah. just kind of brought that to to bear in their writing. So those are those are ones I've write uh, that I like a lot. Uh, Mary Pers uh, Mary Oliver has been somewhat recent uh, a discovery for me, and I really enjoy what I'm reading by her. I'm reading a book called uh, Upstream, which is essays by her. Okay, I don't know that book. Really, really good. And then I'm reading just a, an anthology of sorts of her poetry. Uh, mm -hmm. Those are good. I, I tend to read lots of Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got a big shelf of his work, and I can read those in just a few minutes if I have a, you know, a half hour to read. Uh, and then I'm reading the Holy Bible, which is how I start every day, and it's uh, it's still the one that provokes most of the curiosity in my <laughs> my little brain. Yeah. Well, Alan Levi, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. We Likewise. got a lot to talk about. Uh, we do. <laughs> and so, uh, thanks for being here, and. Uh, I hope we get to talk again soon. Hey, hey! Before we sign off, thank you for what you do. I mean, well, you 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 are such a gift to the uh, creative community, and uh, the habit, uh, every feature that I have seen of it, every aspect. And I don't use computer much, so I, it's not like I spend hours a week even uh, watching podcasts or things. But I love what you do, and I'm waiting for you to take all of those newsletters uh -huh. and somehow tie them into a bundle and make a book that's going to change uh, the world of writers. It will do that. So get to work. All right. Well, uh, mind your own business, Alan. That's a lot of work. <laughs> hey, and in the meantime, go to Office Depot and get 500 pieces of paper and 12 number two pencils. That's and, what I'll and do. Get to work there, too. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jonathan. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. <laughs>